0: he can do many, many things under the emergency powers of the president that he could do without legislation.
1: Mm. Are we sure that's a good idea, Chuck? Just asking. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's right. I got the feeling that something right. Mm, yes or no. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. To the left me, joke us to the right Here I am stuck in the middle with you yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California On KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, Eureka's KGOE Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Rochester, New York on WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV. Out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas' KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We stream as well on the internets coast-to-coast every day for you on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Bird and Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from Bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today, and welcome to the Bradcast. Desi Doy and I have been getting a lot of emails lately, Yes. From, uh, get this.
2: You get emails. (laughs) Yeah, I do. But
1: here, get this. Happy listeners. Okay. I know. I'm as surprised as you. (laughs) They're like ebullient listeners, in fact. Many, uh, frankly, incoherently so. (laughs) Uh, They are, at least so far, uh, beside themselves with happiness at how our new president, Joe Biden, I still have to get good at saying that, uh, and congressional Democrats seem to be aggressively doing the right thing.
2: It's a shock, isn't it?
1: Now, it has only been uh, about two weeks since Biden has taken office. And only today does it seem that the Senate will vote on the organization uh, organizing resolution, whatever they call that, needed to give full committee control to the Democrats. Uh, even though they have been in the majority since inauguration day two weeks ago on January 20, so it's it's early, and after so many years of seeing Democrats screw up and or wrench defeat from the jaws of victory, I fully expect to be disappointed by them very soon.
2: But hey, enjoy it while it lasts.
1: Exactly for the moment, uh, it it and and it could change. Even today, before the show is over, that's how much what I'm calling a PTDS that I have, post-traumatic Democrat syndrome, (laughs) that I am now ingrained with after so many years. But so far, uh, so good for now. Many of the listeners I've heard from uh, via email at Bradcast at Bradblog.com seem to feel the same way. It's very confusing. It's, uh, they are wildly happy right now, so much so that, frankly, I can't share many of their emails, at least without cleaning them up first, because they include a bunch of happy profanities <laughs> to underscore their joy, or they are so happy that their emails are damn near incoherent. <laughs> Seriously. (laughs) Uh, I believe you. Not just one or two, but a lot of them coming in. So uh, maybe anyway, I'll try to share some uh, later if time allows. But for now, there's one that I can share because it's uh, all of about one line long. It has no profanities and it's darn near coherent. This uh, email is from Paul in Reno regarding the study that I noted. Yesterday, finding that in 16 developed countries studied over the past 50 years or so from the U.S. to Australia, tax cuts did not, as they say, trickle down. In fact, tax cuts had no measurable effect on gross domestic product or unemployment, jobs. The only difference that tax cuts made was that the rich got richer, And economic inequality grew dramatically thanks to those tax cuts, or at least in countries where they instituted the tax cuts. So Paul in Reno um, quotes some unknown wag who said, quote, trickle down is conservative code for Niagara up.
2: Oh, well said.
1: Pretty good, huh? Uh, Anyway, he says, I first read this quote during the 2012 presidential election campaign. Thank you, Brad and Desi. You're welcome, Paul, and thank you for that pretty clever quote. Yeah. Niagara up. you got to think about it for a little bit. But, uh, yeah, that's how much sense trickle down apparently uh, seems to make. Along those lines, more today from another study, this one from a couple of Princeton economists in the American Economic Review brought to my attention in The New York Times today by David Leonhardt, who writes, There has been a stark pattern in the U.S. for nearly a century. The economy has grown significantly faster under Democratic presidents than Republican ones. It's true about almost any major economic indicator, gross domestic product, employment, incomes, productivity, even stock prices. The gap, he says, uh, quote, holds almost regardless of how you define success, according to the two economics professors at Princeton who looked at this, Alan Blinder and Mark Watson. They describe it, uh, the difference between Republican and Democratic presidents, as startlingly large. So they go all the way back to 1933 and say, since then, the economy has grown at an annual average rate of 4.6 percent under Democratic presidents and just 2.4 percent under Republicans. That's a huge difference: four point six percent versus two point four.
2: Yeah, that's double.
1: In uh, in more concrete, uh, yeah, almost double. Almost double. Uh, in in more concrete terms, Leonhardt writes, the average income of Americans would be more than double its current level if the economy had somehow grown at the Democratic rate for all of the past nine decades. If anything. That period, which is based on data availability, is too kind to Republicans because it excludes the portion of the Great Depression that happened on Herbert Hoover's watch. For example, he has a graphic with a bunch of presidents. The uh, top five of the 14 presidents since Roosevelt, uh, the top five of the 14 presidents since Roosevelt on jobs are all Democratic on job creation four of the top five on GDP Democratic with Ronald Reagan coming in at number five in that particular list Uh, for the record here of, of those 14 presidents Donald Trump is the 14th on both scores on both lists for jobs and for GDP the four presidents who have presided over the slowest growth on jobs all Republicans All Republicans.
2: Slowest growth on jobs was all Republicans?
1: Yep. Okay. That's, uh, for the record, uh, number 11, Eisenhower, 12, George Bush Sr., number 13, George W. Bush, and number 14, Donald Trump. Uh, And Leonhardt delves into why economists believe that this may be the case. It's not, you know, completely cut and dry. Uh, Economists are not entirely sure how to explain this because there's a whole lot of factors in play. But the most plausible answer that Leonhardt seems to come up with, uh, given the evidence available, is that Democrats have been more willing to heed economic and historic lessons about what policies actually strengthen the economy, while Republicans have often clung to theories that they want to believe, like the supposedly magical power of tax cuts and deregulation. You know, Niagara up. Democrats, in short, have been more pragmatic. For example, when FDR first ran for president in 32, he did not have a fully coherent economic plan. He sometimes argued that reducing the deficit was the key to ending the depression. Above all, though, he called for quote bold, persistent experimentation, as he explained. He said, uh, take a method and try it. If it fails. Admit it, frankly, and try another. But above all, try something. Over time, he and his advisors came to champion the idea that in an economic downturn, when companies and households are caught in a vicious cycle of spending reduction, the government needs to step in. That's the Keynesian approach from uh, John Maynard Keynes. That Cain's. Uh, Keynes? Yes. Really? Mm -hmm. You sure? Mm -hmm. Okay. Bradcast at bradblog.com if you have any question about uh, the pronunciation (laughs) there. Uh, In any event, that has made uh, Democratic presidents much more aggressive in responding to crises than Republicans. Not only was Hoover passive in the face of the Depression, but the first George Bush, for example, was slow to fight the 1991 recession. The second George Bush was slow to fight The uh, 2007 to 2009 financial crisis, President Obama and now President Biden, when faced with an economic crisis, on the other hand, have been much bolder. Past year has offered yet another case study. Trump repeatedly downplayed the coronavirus pandemic and the country suffered. The economy would have experienced the downturn no matter who was president. But his scattered and he's putting a nicely scattered response Aggravated the pandemic and the recession for the record, again, because we believe in facts here and the need for you to know about them. Trump became the first president since Herbert Hoover to preside over a decline in employment, a rise in unemployment. So that's just a fact. So when you hear folks arguing, oh, Donald Trump, uh, yeah, he had problems, this and that, but I loved his economic policies. Well, his economic policies did not help GDP, did not help employment. Now, uh, Leonhardt points out that occasionally a Democratic president has even been willing to go against type in order to encourage growth because they learn from facts and histories. He says, for example, Clinton persuaded that that deficit reduction could bring down interest rates and accelerate growth, scrapped some early spending plans and, yes, raised taxes. Interest rates ended up falling and the economy boomed. Some past Republican presidents also took similarly pragmatic approaches despite being conservative. Both Eisenhower and Nixon were nonetheless comfortable using government to help the economy when needed. The elder George Bush signed a tax increase that contributed to the deficit reduction that in turn ended up fueling the 1990s boom. For that, of course, Republicans ran him out of office. For the most part, however, Republican economic policy since 1980 has has revolved around one simple, single policy, large tax cuts tilted heavily toward the affluent. And as we discussed yesterday making a lot of listeners very happy, apparently, (laughs) Uh, that has actually no record pretty much anywhere in modern times in any of the top developed countries of actually helping the economy on either jobs or GDP. Though it does help rich people to get richer and it increases the economic inequality across the country. If that's the sort of thing you're looking for, again, uh, for the record, GDP grew at virtually the same rate after the 2017 Trump tax cuts as it did before the 2017 Trump tax cuts. If anything, the Clinton tax increase of 1993 has a better claim on starting a boom than any tax cut since. There's more magical stuff about the economy that even economists don't seem to fully understand, but a pretty clear pattern in modern times is emerging. And I mentioned this all by way of saying so far, so good. Democrats are moving forward with their one point nine trillion dollar covid relief bill now in both the House and the Senate, uh, which is less than that two point three trillion dollar tax cut that uh, Trump and the Republicans gave away to mostly rich people and corporations back in 2017. Uh, They're moving it forward in the Senate now officially in a way that it can be passed with a simple majority. That's if West Virginia's Joe Manchin plays along. And while, yes, I am suffering from post-traumatic Democrat syndrome or maybe Lucy and the football syndrome, I am very encouraged so far By what the Democrats are doing. I know we're only two weeks in. Yes, but so far so good. The listeners I've heard from, it seems many of them also suspicious of Democrats in the past. They also seem to be encouraged so far. So I'm happy to see it. And not because I am a partisan here, but because I want to see this country work again. And I want you specifically to know what is actually happening and what is not I fully suspect I will become disappointed again at any minute with the (laughs) Democrats. But for now, looking good. Keep going, Democrats. So that's my my post-traumatic Democratic uh, syndrome. What about my regular old PTSD? That would be post-Trump stress syndrome. That one is still definitely in play. You know, my mother asked me the other day, oh, you must be feeling better and less stressed and anxious now that Trump is out of office. Well, yes and no. It is not easy, frankly, to go from four years of red alert 24-7, 365 down to, uh, I don't know, yellow alert. It also doesn't uh, help that Donald Trump is still with us with his second impeachment trial beginning next week and a boatload of disasters and emergencies, fake or real or otherwise, that still need to be cleaned up. And when it comes to those fake emergencies that Donald Trump specifically declared while in office... And with the uh, fake emergency that he reportedly came very close to declaring to try and steal the election, yeah, you know, it's going to take a while to get over my post-Trump stress disorder, as I suspect is uh, probably the case for a lot of listeners as well.
2: Oh, definitely. At least I know I For you? It. Oh, yeah. yes.
1: Yeah, we should be feeling better, but... Eh,
2: take some time to ramp some down some and disengage yeah, from that and figure out what the new landscape is. Actually is.
1: Now, my uh, my my next guest coming up may or may not help along these lines. We will see Elizabeth Goytine, who scared the hell out of many of us a few years ago by detailing the emergency powers that Congress uh, has given to the president. For one of them, let's say Donald Trump, to use and or abuse. Well, she joins us next to argue that now is the time... Now that Trump is out of office, now is the time to finally rein in those dangerous powers. That is straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Sounds scary. So on Tuesday at Axios, Jonathan Swan and Zachary Basu, in their uh, latest edition of their Off the Rails series, documenting the final days of the Trump administration, detail the absolutely insane, gonzo, bonkers, and uh, had we known about its details at the time, absolutely terrifying Hours-long meeting that took place at the Trump White House on Friday, December 18. There was uh, some reporting on that meeting at the time. That was the one where Team Trump attorney Sidney Powell was arguing to be made a DOJ special counsel to investigate her pretend international worldwide Dominion voting system conspiracy and the national voter fraud conspiracy they were making up. Uh, you know, to steal the election from Donald Trump. That was the meeting where Rudy Giuliani was on the phone calling for the DOJ to impound voting machines where Trump's disgraced national security adviser, Michael Flynn, was calling for Trump to uh, somehow declare martial law and have the military hold a do over election somehow Uh, And as the few remaining people at the White House who were not completely insane were arguing against all of that madness for hours into the night. Uh, If you haven't read that insane and insanely well-sourced inside account of what happened that day in that meeting, I'll try to remember to link to that article when I post tonight's show at Bradblog.com. I highly recommend it if only for the schadenfreude factor and sense of relief of what did not ultimately happen. But there are a few points in that 3,300-word 3, story of note that jumped out at me, and I think they are of note regarding our guest who joins us momentarily. A couple of the references I want to share with you concerning how close we might have been had the Powells and the Giulianis and the Flyns had their way in In the insane arguments that they were making to an apparently quite receptive Donald Trump regarding invoking presidential emergency powers to try and steal the election from Joe Biden. At the last minute, just a few of the excerpts on that point. The hours to come during the meeting would pit the insurgent conspiracists against the handful of White House lawyers and advisers determined to keep the president from giving in to temptation to invoke national emergency national security powers, seize voting machines and disable the primary levers of American democracy. Sydney Powell proposed declaring a national security emergency, granting her and her cabal top secret security clearances and using the U.S. government to seize Dominion's voting machines. Powell was arguing that they couldn't get a judge to enforce any subpoena to hand over the voting machines because all of the judges were corrupt, she said. She and her group repeatedly referred to the National Emergencies Act and a Trump executive order from 2018 that was designed to clear the way for the government to sanction foreign actors interfering in U.S. elections. Derek Lyons, the White House staff secretary, told the president that the executive order that Powell and Flynn were citing did not give him the authority they claimed to seize voting machines. Matt Morgan, the campaign lawyer who was also arguing Against all of this madness, after finding no way that Trump could have actually won the election, also expressed skepticism about their idea of invoking national security emergency powers. White House National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien intervened at one point. During this hours long meeting to say that he saw no evidence to support Powell's notion of declaring a national security emergency to seize voting machines. All of that is not the craziest of the stuff in that Axios article, but it it is among some of the scariest, as Trump reportedly was very seriously considering these crazy options to declare a national security emergency to somehow Help steal a presidential election, whether the National Emergencies Act actually gave him those powers or not. As we know, over his seemingly decades-long four-year term, he invoked the National Emergencies uh, Act to do, well, all sorts of things, whether legal or not. For example, to divert money from the military to build his border wall, even after Congress had explicitly voted against giving him the money to do so. At Politico late last month, just after Joe Biden was safely inaugurated into office, Elizabeth Goytine, the co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law, wrote on his first day in office, President Joe Biden made official what should have been obvious. There is no emergency at the southern border other than perhaps the humanitarian crisis brought about by the Trump administration's own immigration policies. Biden's executive order rescinded Donald Trump's 2019 declaration of a national emergency, and that will halt further construction of a wall that has stigmatized immigrants, harmed the environment and served as an ugly symbol of xenophobia. But while Biden's order will end this particular abuse of presidential emergency powers, it will not safeguard our democracy from future abuses. She writes, Trump's presidency revealed a fatal weakness in the law governing national emergencies. And the time to fix that law, she argues, is precisely when the White House is occupied by someone who is unlikely to abuse it. That argument, at least to me, seems uh, to only be underscored by that crazy Axios-reported last days of the Trump presidency meeting in the White House. Under the National Emergencies Act, Goytin explains the president has near-total discretion to declare a national emergency. Such a declaration, in turn, unlocks powers contained in more than 100 different provisions of law, As Goitin first alerted and frankly scared the hell out of many of us in this nation with a report on those powers back in late 2018, warning at the time that there are scores of emergency powers granted to the president of the United States going back decades that allow him or her to do all sorts of things, sometimes legally, other times not, because frankly, So few people, including many in Congress, even know that these powers actually exist. These include authorities, according to Goytin, not just to reallocate military construction funds, as Trump did for his border wall, but to take over radio stations, control domestic transportation and suspend the prohibition against government testing of chemical agents on unwitting human subjects to end The prohibition against that. There are also powers that allow the president to detail members of the U.S. armed forces to other nations and to prohibit or limit the export of any agricultural commodity. Most Americans, she writes, would be shocked to discover just how many national emergencies are currently in force and what powers they give the president. She notes that since the law's enactment in 1976, presidents have declared 69 national emergencies and 39 of them still remain in effect today, including the emergency power that is broad enough to permit the targeting of Americans, allow the president to freeze their bank accounts and make it illegal to give them a job, to rent them an apartment or even sell them groceries. Goitin argues that the time to end the ability to abuse these powers somehow is under a president less likely to use or at least abuse them. She concludes failing to address them when we have a chance to do so would be civic malpractice. The time to reform emergency powers is now under a president who seems more inclined to rescind bogus emergency declarations than issue them. Joining us now is Elizabeth Goitin, who, if Donald Trump didn't scare us all enough during the Trump administration... She helped top that off with her fact based warnings about the little known National Emergencies Act. In addition to her work with Brandon Center, she previously counseled Senator Russ Feingold of Wisconsin. I miss him. Focusing on national security, government secrecy, and privacy rights, and as a trial attorney in the Civil Division of the Department of Justice. Liza, it has been several years now, but welcome back to the broadcast, I think.
3: Thank you. I think (laughs) it's it's my pleasure to be here.
1: Thank you. Uh, You note in in your uh, in that uh, recent piece at Politico that, ironically, when Congress passed the National Emergencies Act, its purpose was to rein in presidents' excessive reliance on emergency declarations. But to hear you warn us, it seems like the results have been quite the opposite. Or at least could be, and to some extent was, during the Trump administration. Am I reading you correctly there?
3: Yeah, you're right about that. So, so what happened is that for the past roughly a century, uh, the way that national emergencies have worked is that the president declares a national emergency, and then that declaration unlocks powers that are contained in other laws. Mm-hmm. And so Congress has enacted these statutes that say, in a national emergency, the president can do X. But what was happening was that presidents were uh, issuing these emergency declarations, but there was very little transparency about them, uh, mm-hmm. no reporting to Congress necessarily, mm-hmm. uh, no end date for the emergency declaration, and really no way for Congress to, to even be involved. Mm-hmm. And so in the 1970s, when executive power in general kind of came under the microscope in Congress, mm-hmm. uh, Congress passed the National Emergencies Act. And there were three main ways that the act tried to rein in uh, or to at least provide some oversight for presidential use of emergency powers. And the first uh, was that a declaration of a national emergency would expire after a year unless the president renewed the the emergency. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. this was meant... The, to be To set a default, mm-hmm. essentially, that the default length was no longer than a year. Unfortunately, it's very easy for presidents to renew them, and so they just do it habitually. Mm. Um the average length of time for a national emergency is ten years or longer. Wow. Um, the other the second uh, major uh, reform was to uh, and this was really the main one mm-hmm. was to give Congress the power to terminate an emergency declaration through a legislative veto, which is basically a law that Congress passes with a simple majority that goes into effect without the president signing it. Mm -hmm. Um, The issue there, and that would have been a very meaningful check, but Mm -hmm. the issue is that in 1983, shortly thereafter, the Supreme Court held that legislative vetoes are unconstitutional. Uh. And so that check pretty much went away. So now in order to terminate a national emergency, Congress has to pass a law And either the president has to sign it, or, which, you know, the president's not going to do, presumably, if the president issued the emergency in the first place. Right. Or Congress has to muster a two-thirds majority in each house in order to override the veto, which, as we all know, in today's uh, political environment, is near impossible to achieve. Right. Um, And and then the last check was that Congress um, was required to meet every six months while an emergency was in force, to consider a vote on termination. Um, And Congress just ignored it and literally did not meet once in the 40 years between when that law was passed and when they took their very first vote uh, in response to President Trump's border wall declaration.
1: And and nobody uh, sued them, the ACLU or Brennan Center sued them to at least do their job that they're required to do, to meet every six months to make those considerations?
3: Somebody did see them at one point, and what the First Circuit held, and it, the, the judge was, uh, was then Judge Breyer, who became Justice Breyer, ah. uh, was that you know, probably what Congress meant was that uh, any member sort of could force a vote every six months, but they probably didn't literally mean that Congress was required mm. to do that. And so at that point, Congress was more or less off the hook.
1: Now, are those excerpts, Liza Goytine, that I shared from that (laughs) crazy Axios article, don't know if you saw that article, but uh, it it was nuts. Are are those the uh, the, sort of the types of abuse that you have been so concerned about and trying to warn about for the past several years now? No, Uh, no. no? And and so
3: there's there's good news and bad news here. Um, The good news is, while it's very easy for a president to declare a national emergency and while there are a lot of uh... laws that are triggered that to me are scary and dangerous Uh it's not a free pass for the president to do literally anything he wants and there is no law that congress has passed that says in a national emergency the president can seize voting machines that does not exist so the president is limited even in a national emergency to these laws congress has passed um, I, I think that many of those laws absolutely need to be revisited and reformed to be made more narrow. I think there's absolutely no reason why, in a national emergency, the president should be able to take over radio stations. And the fact that uh, by nearly declaring a threat of war, the president could potentially even take over the Internet right. in this country is, is horrifying. Well, but, um, but, but yeah, that, it's not the same thing as saying the president can do literally anything he wants. This idea of a national security emergency exists only in the tortured imaginations of the people in that room. (laughs) So that is...
1: well, yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I don't think, uh, uh, you know, that he was allowed to take money from the military to build his wall under a national emergency, but he did it. I mean, had he invoked that, and presumably he was talking about the National Emergencies Act, invoking it correctly or incorrectly, it sounds like that's what he was uh, planning to do, whether there is anything that allows him to do that or not. Is, well, there did you is read a that law. Out? Yeah. Well,
3: there is a law when the president declares a national emergency that allows him to divert funds that were intended for military construction to other military construction projects mm. uh, that are needed for a deployment of the armed forces. Now, he said that the wall was a military construction project needed mm. for the deployment of the armed forces. Okay, it clearly wasn't, and ultimately, uh, there were judges and courts who who held that he had that he was misinterpreting to put it generously, mm. uh, that particular emergency power. But there is a power to divert uh, military construction funds to other projects. There, I'm telling you right now, there is no <laughs> power that that the president has to hold a new election, to seize voting machines, to, to declare martial law. These are not powers that Congress has, has granted. And when you see the things, when you see Flynn out there saying, the president should do x y and z right. by he should he should use the insurrection act and martial law and national emergencies to suspend civil rights and constitutional it, it's an autocratic word salad and it it is has no connection to the actual law and what the law permits so uh, the, the good news okay is that the law the law does not allow the things that okay. were said in that room the bad news right. is that the law allows some things that are very scary and there are those out there who think that the president is not bound by the laws that Congress has passed in an emergency situation. Mm. That's not the National Emergencies Act. That's these claims of inherent constitutional authority um, that have been made by modern presidential administrations, not just President Trump, Mm -hmm. uh, in, in recent decades. And These opinions and interpretations of inherent presidential authority get broader and broader. These are opinions that the Department of Justice comes up with. Um, And we have no idea what opinions Attorney General Barr signed, uh, because a lot of these are secret, um, saying that the president had some kind of inherent power to to do any number of
1: those things. To shoot people on Fifth Avenue, apparently. Uh, as as you were alerting us to, uh, to all of this uh, over the past several years, Liza, what, what was your worst, and I want to talk about how to reform this and some concerns about doing so, but what was your worst fear? Because I know you must have had them as you were writing about all of this, alerting us about all of this. What was your worst fear that about what Trump might have done with those powers uh, which uh, hopefully you can say now that he's safely out of office in any event.
3: Yeah, although I hesitate to uh, give any ideas to any of his disciples. But as I wrote about in the Atlantic article, mm-hmm. um, I thought that, that the the ability to to take over or take control of or to shut down communications facilities mm. in a, in a national emergency and or if there is a threat of war is an extremely dangerous power. And you can imagine any number of ways in which Uh, that power could could be abused in in ways that would undermine democracy. Um, And then the relatedly, not relatedly exactly, but but, um, I could see that power being used in conjunction with um, the emergency economic power to impose um, financial sanctions on anyone, Mm. including any American, if the president determines that it's necessary to address a foreign threat. And so if the president designates some kind of some foreign threat, along with a national emergency declaration, um, that gives him or her the authority to freeze the assets of anyone that Mm. is deemed to contribute to that threat um, and to prohibit people inside the United States, people within U.S. jurisdiction, from doing any kind of business with that person. And so it really is a financial death sentence. Um, It has been used by presidents in the past to impose uh, sanctions on hostile foreign actors, which is basically what it was meant for. Mm -hmm. But it can be used against Americans. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it was used after 9-11 to shut down some uh, Muslim American charities without Mm -hmm. the government ever having to prove any kind of wrongdoing Mm -hmm. in a court. And it was used against individuals, Muslim American individuals, um, and, and later the government essentially admitted error and dropped those sanctions. But in the meantime, you know, there was an individual yeah. who literally wasn't even able to, to get a job
1: or, or feed his family and for months. And, and there's really no, uh, other than uh, going to court and going through that process and taking all the years that it might take, there's, there's uh, really no recourse that someone has, I guess, under these powers if the president uses them against one. You recommend in, your, uh, in the piece at Politico that these powers now be reined in under, uh, under Joe Biden. How could or would or should that work? Is that something that Joe Biden can do or is it something that Congress is now needed to do?
3: Joe Biden could issue an executive order that constrains his own use of emergency powers. Um, that would be welcome, but it certainly would would not be enough because mm-hmm. the issue is constraining future presidents and constraining you know the next Donald Trump, um, heaven forfend. Uh, <laughs> so it, what is really needed is, is is legislative reform, and the simplest reform, and in some ways uh, the most needed, most effective reform, is to get Congress back in the game in a meaningful way. And the way to do that is to provide that these presidentially declared emergencies will expire after a short period, after 30 days, Mm -hmm. unless Congress votes to approve them. And so it essentially flips the default. Instead of Congress having to muster a supermajority to stop the emergency declaration, the emergency declaration will only last for a certain amount of time unless Congress affirmatively Mm -hmm. votes to continue it. Um, And that really um, restores the proper balance of power between the president and Congress when it comes to these extraordinary powers where the president really might need um, additional flexibility in the moment, Uh right, as the crisis is unfolding. But after the passage of time, a month later, Congress has had time to consider how it should respond. And at that point, Congress should really uh, get back in the game. Now, and that is yeah,
1: yeah, no, go ahead. Go ahead, please.
3: I was just going to say that that reform um, has been proposed in several different bills that have been introduced in both the House and the Senate. Uh, It has broad bipartisan support, um, and so that is a a common-sense, simple solution um, that actually has has real promise, I think, and and could potentially be enacted in the next Congress.
1: And? I agree with you. And when I read that I read your article, uh, I, I thought, well, this makes sense. Yes, Congress has to improve it, uh, approve it. We've got 30 days for this emergency for the President to deal with it. And then the Congress can approve. Yes, we need to uh, continue that emergency or extend it and so forth. It sounded eminently reasonable, Liza. And then, well, you know, while I think they should take action, I don't I don't know if this uh, falls under the National Emergencies Act or not. I believe it would. But I want to get your take on this. An argument was made for good reason that Democrats and Joe Biden would not want to curb those powers. Here was Chuck Schumer last week, don't know if you saw this on the, on the Rachel Maddow show, uh, I think just after your piece came out, calling for Biden to, yes, invoke emergency powers when it comes to dealing with our climate crisis.
0: I think it might be a good idea for President Biden to call a climate emergency. Hmm, why? then he can do many, many things under the emergency powers of the president that wouldn't have to go through, that he could do without legislation. Now Trump used this emergency for a stupid wall, which wasn't an emergency. But if there ever was an emergency, climate is one. So I would suggest uh, that they explore looking at climate as an emergency, which would give them more flexibility. After all, it's a crisis.
1: Now, that does not sound like someone who wants to claw back those emergency powers from the president, Liza. And I suspect that, you know, if they did reform it so that Congress had to approve it every 30 days, I don't think you would get this particular Congress to be able to approve it. Well, at least not if the filibuster was in place. Democrats, I think, are making the argument here that uh, Trump did it. We want to do it, too. Well, so
3: first of all, I think it's not mutually exclusive for forming the Emergency Powers Act and declaring an emergency for climate change. It's not every 30 days that Congress would approve. It's after the first 30 days, and then on a yearly basis, Congress Mm -hmm. would approve renewal. Um, And it is a simple majority vote. It would be under a special rule, essentially, Mm -hmm. which is part of the legislation, Mm -hmm. that it could be approved by a simple majority. So I think if President Biden were to do this, it probably would actually you know, be approved by Congress. However, that said, <laughs> I published an op-ed in the Washington Post last Friday addressing mm-hmm. Schumer's claim and addressing this particular uh, issue of whether or not there should be a, a national emergency declared around climate change. And my position is that there shouldn't. And there are two reasons for that. The first reason is that... Um, I completely understand uh, why Senator Schumer says that, that clim- climate change is an emergency. I mm-hmm. think that would resonate with a lot of people. In fact, the word emergency has a definition, and this is something that, has, uh, that the plaintiffs in the border wall litigation you know, made very clear. Mm-hmm. Even though Congress didn't, declare, didn't define national emergency in the legislation, it does have a definition, and one aspect of that definition, a central aspect, is that the events in question have to be unexpected and unforeseen. Mm. That is a critical part of the definition of an emergency. It's not just something that's very serious and requires imminent action. It's something that happened suddenly. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, Al Gore would be incredibly annoyed to hear anybody say (laughs) that climate change just happened just now and nobody (laughs) expected it. So, and this is not just a semantic nicety. I'm Uh not just sort of trying to, you know, pick at this. It's it's central to the purpose of emergency powers in our constitutional system. Uh-huh. Emergency powers are not meant to address long-standing problems that require long-term solutions. That's what Congress is meant for, right? right? The, the justification for emergency powers is that Congress could not have foreseen what is happening, and that it's unfolding so quickly that Congress institutionally doesn't have time to react. That's why presidents are given much greater flexibility in those cases and if congress has had ample time to consider whether or not to to authorize particular measures in response to climate change or or unlawful immigration or whatever it might be mm-hmm. and has chosen not to do what the president thinks should be done that is not a situation in which emergency powers are in order but this the second reason which is just as important um, why i think that that's, that uh, that idea uh well certainly well-intentioned is misguided is what I said earlier, which is that declaring a national emergency does not give the president to do whatever he thinks he should do. He is limited to the powers that Congress has enacted. And I have looked through all of the 120-some powers that the president can access Mm -hmm. by declaring a national emergency. None of them, they were all written over decades, a period Mm -hmm. of decades. None of them was written with climate change in mind. And as it turns out... None of them is a very good fit. Mm. And so even if all of these facially plausible powers could be sort of pressed into service here, yeah. they wouldn't be anywhere near enough to address the problem of climate change. President Biden is going to have to use other authorities, authorities and he's going to have to get new authorities and new resources, new funding from Congress. And he can't avoid that by declaring a national emergency. And frankly, I don't think it's going to help him getting more resources out of Congress to start off by declaring a national emergency to sort of get around Congress.
1: And I hear you and you make a compelling argument, as you always do, uh, Elizabeth Goytine. And now I've got a real dilemma on my mind because, you know, I think that Congress is so unbelievably broken and i match that up against what uh i see as a climate emergency and 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 a climate crisis uh a climate that is unbelievably broken and that something needs to be done and i hear you and i approve of your view of uh the powers and the way they should work and that congress should be the one in charge and yet i'm left with this terrible dilemma because I see a planet in very real trouble and uh, I don't see Republicans coming around uh, to do the right thing, no matter what it is. Uh, I,
3: and I, and I yeah. hear you, I have that same dilemma, yeah. right? I mean, I'm, I'm a mother I'm, I worry about the, the future of my children on yeah. this planet and their children. Uh, but I will say uh, emergency powers don't get you out of that dilemma for the, for the reason I said. They, they won't solve the problem. They are not the answer, they're not the solution. And to the extent the solution is going to have to involve Congress, we can't get around that. There's, there's no way around it. That's a, that's a hill we have to climb somehow. Now, I will say there are existing authorities that the president has that don't require him to declare an emergency that he can make much better use of than previous presidents mm-hmm. have. Um, and that includes things like the Defense Production Act, which uh-huh. is a law that um, allows the president to... Uh, Incentivize and in in and in some cases direct production Mm -hmm. um, of certain materials by private industry. Um, That is something that that President Trump used, although very very sparingly. Is is uh, a national COVID nineteen
1: is a national emergency needed to uh, to declare the DPA?
3: No. Okay. It's not. Good. It's not. And and so and so this is I, I'm not saying that that there that the president is powerless mm-hmm. at all. I think there are many things, a lot of aggressive actions the president can take uh to make inroads into this problem. But to the extent that we uh, have this feeling what it, what to do about a Congress that that won't um sort of fall in line on yeah. com- on climate change and and do what's needed, that is a huge problem and the solution isn't well, we'll just do it without Congress. That's that's not... Those authorities don't exist.
1: Well, I hope that the White House is in touch with you on this. And, and, and finally, you know, I know you've got a lot of... Uh, you, you, you received a lot of attention to your report in... Uh, I think it was in 2018 that scared the hell out of all of us, warning about the access that Trump has to these little-known emergency powers.
0: You're uh,
1: welcome. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, but how, how has the attention been now that Trump is safely out, Biden is safely in, and now you're calling for those powers to be rolled back? Have you heard from, you know, anyone in Congress or at the White House about their interest in doing so or, or how it could be done?
3: Oh, yes. I mean, and, and when I say that there is bipartisan support for reforming the National Emergencies Act, I don't just mean, you know, there were a few Democrats and a few Republicans that got behind it. There, first of all, there was a Republican bill um, that had 20 co-sponsors, mm-hmm. I think 19 Republican co-sponsors in the Senate that passed out of the Senate Homeland Security Committee with mm-hmm. all of the Democratic members supporting it. Mm-hmm. And then that Republican bill, a version of that bill, was included in two major Democratic reform packages uh the protecting our democracy act and the congressional power of the purse act and leadership um and, you know democratic leadership has made clear that the reforms contained in those particular reform packages mm-hmm. are still top priority um so i i think there is an understanding that this administration is our chance and you know it's a chance that we must seize mm-hmm. to kind of shore up the guardrails on Hello. our democracy And and emergency powers has been part of that conversation. Uh, I hope and trust that it it will continue to be.
1: Thank you. I hope uh, and trust that it will be as well. We will see, and I hope and trust that I will like it if it happens. Uh, Thank you very much, Liza, for keeping your eye on this, for warning the nation about this, and I hope you don't mind if we don't wait another three years or so to have you back uh, to discuss national security-related issues uh, like this or Any other, should they uh, pop up uh, in the next few months and years? Really appreciate it. Uh, Elizabeth Goytine is the co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at NYU's Brennan Center for Justice. You can be terrified by her Twitter account, where you'll find her at Liza Goytine. You can also, of course, find uh, Brennan Center at BrennanCenter.org and on the Twitter's at Brennan Center. Thanks, Liza. Really appreciate it. Great talking to you
3: thanks
1: so much. You bet. Okay, quick break, and we' are back. you know, just in case you're wondering, the the Trumpers have not given up on their claim that the election was stolen from Donald Trump by Dominion voting systems. Oh, God. However, they are having trouble getting out that message, even on right wing, Quote unquote news outlets. Uh, That rather amusing story is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com/donate today. That's bradblog.com/donate and thanks. <laughs>
3: Mr. Simon, bring me a
1: dream. Make him the you know, you know that uh, right-wing wingnut pillow guy, Mike Lindell. I don't oh, yes. think he's uh, bringing much uh, many dreams to many people this. <laughs> More like nightmares even to right-wing media outlets. Welcome back to the broadcast Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Trump foot soldier and my pillow CEO Mike Lindell's latest attempt to push more of former President uh, Donald Trump's election fraud falsehoods backfired spectacularly during an appearance on Newsmax Newsmax. The right wing Newsmax on Tuesday amid complaints about Dominion voting systems, which has threatened to sue both Newsmax and Lindell, for espousing unfounded claims that somehow the voting machine company committed massive fraud during the 2020 election. And they are serious about it. They have already filed a $1.3 billion defamation suit against Team Trump attorneys Sidney Powell, another one against Rudy Giuliani. They have threatened others, including Newsmax, with similar. And yes, Mike Lindell. In any event, Lindell was asked onto Newsmax on Tuesday to talk about uh, so-called cancel culture, you know, the thing that Republicans used to love all the time when they would boycott a business or an actor whose politics they didn't like or a music group like the Dixie Chicks because they didn't like their politics. Now it's coming back to bite them and they've decided they don't like the free market, you know, expression of opinions About them. Anyway, Lindell was asked to go on to Newsmax to talk about cancel culture since he has been permanently banned from Twitter, and it did not go well. Newsmax anchor Bob Sellers spent most of the segment loudly reading CYA disclaimers over Lindell's shouting his conspiracy theories in the background. Give it a listen.
0: So well, what happened? What what happened
3: with your Twitter account and the uh, company page?
0: Well, first mine was taken down because we have all the election fraud with these Dominion machines. We have a hundred percent proof. And then I, when they took it down, um, uh, a three weeks ago. My, I, and then when I put it back up. My personal, I put it. It was. A Mike, uh, thank you very much, Mike. Defend. Mike, I, you're talking about machines uh, that that we at Newsmax have not been able to verify any of uh, yeah. okay. those you kinds of allegations. What? We um, just want to let people know well, that there's not nothing not substantive well, that we've right. seen. And let me read you something there. Yeah, While there yeah. were yeah. some yeah. clear yeah. evidence yeah. of yeah. some yeah. cases yeah. of vote yeah. fraud and election irregularities, know. the election results in every state were certified and. Newsmax accepts the results as legal and final. The courts have also supported that view. So we wanted to talk to you about canceling culture, (laughs) if you will. We don't want to (laughs) relitigate the the, uh, allegations that you're making, Mike, because we we understand where you are. So let me ask you this. Do you think that this should be temporary because it appears to be permanent? Could you make an argument that it is temporary? (laughs) Could you make an argument that this could be a temporary banning rather than permanent? No, I want it to be a permanent because you know what? They did this because I'm revealing all the evidence on Friday of all the election problems with these machines. So I'm sorry if you okay. Think it's not Okay, uh, Mike, real, I, I, can I ask world. our producers, can we uh, get out of here, please? Uh, I, I don't want to have to keep going over this. Actually, we at Newsmax Mike, have not been able wait, to verify as any, as any as of as those as as allegations that you're. Mike, your, hold on a second. As Everybody,
3: as hold on as as a, 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 a second. Mike, Mike, hold on one second. <laughs> Uh, let's talk a little bit about just what is happening overall in terms of censorship.
0: I'm like of... trying to cancel out my company and myself okay. in this country it's cancel culture.
1: Now what you can't see there is at the at the end when that woman started speaking, the anchor just walked out. He left. He left. He said, Can we get out of here? And he just literally and then he did got up and got away. He's scared to death of being sued too. Oh, the crazy never ends. It will continue tomorrow on the next thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Until then, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my (laughs) guest today, Brennan Center's Elizabeth Goitin, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show... If you had to walk out because you were afraid you'd be sued by Dominion, uh, you can download it anytime for free at (laughs) bradblog.com. Our thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to keep us on your public airwaves. And yes, telling the truth and maybe giving you some nightmares as well. Drop me email (laughs) if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. That is it. Until we meet again. I'm Brad Friedman. Sleep well, world. Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream.
2: Make him the cutest that I've ever seen.
3: Give him two lips like roses and clover.